Welcome to today's People in Strategy podcast. I'm Tony Lee, Vice President of Content for the Society for Human Resource Management and the SHRM Executive Network, which is the premier network of executives and thought leaders in the field of human resources. I'm excited to speak today with Calvin Crossland, Chief Diversity Officer at Lenovo, as well as President of the Lenovo Foundation. Calvin is responsible for driving the corporate vision, goals, strategies, and performance metrics for Lenovo's Global Diversity and Inclusion Office, which supports more than 63,000 employees from 60 countries around the world. Calvin has spent his career in a variety of roles with Lenovo and IBM before that, rising up from his start as an HR generalist. Calvin, welcome to the People and Strategy podcast. Thank you, Tony. I'm excited to be here. Well, thanks. So diversity has uh, really kind of taken a hit lately. I mean, many workplace diversity initiatives uh, are struggling after a period of great focus and investment. So how do you see diversity efforts evolving from this point? Yeah, Tony, I think you're absolutely right. I think we know that both from some well thought thought of publications that we've, we've seen articles, certainly in talking to our peers across various industries, that that is in fact the case. Um, so what I think is going to happen going forward is, you know, Post George Floyd's murder, a lot of organizations put in inaugural CDOs. They, they put in infrastructure, resources, dollars to support uh, DNI efforts uh, internally and externally, right? And, I, and I've seen a big commitment here lately. So what I think we're going to see going forward is organizations that continue to drive this work are committed to it. It's part of their corporate culture. It's part of the fabric and the DNA of who they are. Yeah, but there are differences that you need to distinguish between, I believe. I mean, we see a lot of diversity training efforts that focus on culture versus those that focus on racial differences. Do you see any any strategies there for why those are separated? I, I think you can do both, honestly. I mean, you know, at Lenovo, we're uh, 70,000 employees across 180 markets. So clearly we have to be focused on on culture, right? And inclusive behaviors. And we have an internal model module that we use to reinforce that, right? What what do inclusive behaviors look like? Definitions, examples, and how do you grow those behaviors? So I think that's incredibly important when you're in a global organization. I also think or, or know that there are certain geographies, the U.S. being one of them, that have their unique challenges around things like race, right? And so I think uh, in those instances, you have to have programs that address historically uh, excluded talent. And it, it seems one of the knocks that has kind of emerged about diversity training is the question of where's the ROI? I mean, how do we measure the success of a diversity training program? Is that a problem that needs to be solved or does it need to be measured? Well, I think it should be measured, but there's various ways, right? There's qualitative and there's quantitative measures for everything that we do. And I think, again, we've got some pretty well recognized institutions and publications that have have, have demonstrated that there are returns on investment in terms of market share, in terms of innovation. And so I think that, you know, there's there's a number of in key indicators that this is important work. I know for a fact that if you don't think about some of these things during the design phase of a product or a program, that when it inevitably happens, if you don't have diverse teams, and diverse thought is you get the product launch and realize that you've perhaps made, it, made uh, tremendous mistakes and now have to hold off on a product launch. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. So uh, let's dig a little bit deeper. I mean, one of the aspects of diversity training that diversity experts, many seem to rally around is, is mentoring and creating a mentoring program 
to help ensure inclusion as well as help make sure younger employees are advancing. So, Cal, do, do you then agree with many diversity experts who say that mentoring is the best way to both ensure inclusion and help younger employees advance? I think it's a great way. And I think also what's important is sponsorship. Uh, I have benefited myself personally from both. And I think mentorship from a standpoint of, and, and this could be fairly controversial because I am not a big fan of formal mentor programs that partner people together because I think there's an organic relationship that develops that matching based on resumes or other or algorithms can't necessarily do. So I think what I like to see is when we teach people to be good mentors and we teach people to be good mentees. So what do I mean by that? There's a lot of senior leaders oftentimes that are good at giving advice and not always as great at pausing and listening to what a person really wants out of their career, or out of their life. And so I think teaching people to be more like an executive coach in terms of really listening and then enabling the person to guide and direct their career. And similarly, as a mentee, understanding that it is up to you to own your career, uh, finding the right mentor for you, having the right initial conversation, engaging from that conversation. Is there a chemistry where you continue to have that relationship and build and nurture that relationship over time? And secondly, like I said, I think sponsorship is incredibly important because you really need someone to advocate for you and your career. Somebody that feels a personal responsibility for your growth, your development and your progression. And so I think sponsorship and having people that advocate for you when you're not in the room is incredibly important when we talk about career development and career progression. You know, it, it makes great sense uh, and it makes it more of a two-way street, but you're dealing with some egos here too. I mean, how do you get senior leaders to sit down and be trained in how to be a better mentor, how to be a better sponsor if if they're not really, you know, inclined to do that typically? I think that's where we come in as HR professionals, right? I think one of the things that we are responsible for, regardless, of, particularly as, as generalists, right, are being coaches to our executives. And so I think uh, helping our executives understand that sometimes, you know, not that they're not the best at it, but there's no issue, so to speak, with learning to be better at certain things, that, particularly things that you want to be good at. I think some most of our leaders understand their responsibility to grow the next generation of leaders, but sometimes that's often not the case. And so helping uh, some of our executives or leaders understand their responsibility to grow the next generation of talent and understand that there are, there are best practices in, in doing so, uh, I think is a consultative thing that we can do as HR professionals. Yeah, no, that makes great sense. All right, let's pivot a little bit. So improving employee retention and engagement is a key concern everywhere. Can you share some tactics that have worked especially well for you to keep employees engaged and retained? Yeah, we employ stay interviews here, right? We all know about the exit interview where people can be uh, forthright and forthcoming on some senses and some areas they're like, well, you know, I'm gone anyway, so I'm, I'm just going to tell them it's around compensation or something of that nature. So I think when you think about stay interviews or proactive retention, it is a conversation around compensation factors and non-compensation factors, right? So first and foremost, you have to make sure people are paid, uh, you know, market rate. Uh, and then next, you have to find out what are the things that really motivate that person beyond just compensation. Could be key projects, could be career progression, could be uh, uh, more technical roles. I know of many situations where some leaders are not necessarily uh, motivated by what you do for them specifically, but what are you? What what types of tools you give them to uh, to uh, help their team? And that might be giving them the the right resources 
to get the work done that they envision getting done, you know, whether it's a project or whether it's a program that they're driving. So I think you have to treat it as a very unique uh, discussion with each of your employees. What role does workplace flexibility play? I mean, that sometimes is even more important than anything else for some employees. Huge. I often joke that this is not that complicated of a, of a challenge. When you hear people say things like, I get to work from home today, or I get to work from remote today, or I have to go in the office, it kind of gives you a clear indication of, of some preferences. But I think one of the things that you know you can do to balance that, particularly in hybrid environment, is you give people a workplace that is truly collaborative. And when it's most beneficial and when it's most productive for them to be face to face and collaborative, there's a there's a facility or 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 place to do that, space to do that. And when they have the a need to be remote to to work on things where they can't don't and can't be interrupted, need to be more focused. Or and let's face it, there's no such thing as work life balance anymore. It really is work life integration. So you know, example, we're a global company. I work from probably six a.m. to nine p.m. most days. Somewhere in that, figure out when I'm going to eat, when I'm going to make it to the gym, when I'm going to spend time with my kids. And so you have to figure out how to do that. And so I think offering people flexibility, giving our leaders the ability to help navigate that with their employees uh, is the way to try to accomplish those uh, that, that, that hybrid or that flexible model. Yeah. So, you know, one of the challenges, I, I, I don't have to tell you with return to the office, you know, mandates from a lot of companies are employees who have that kind of need for a flexible schedule, child care issues, elder care issues, whatever it may be. So do you not have firm policies? Do, do you encourage every manager to have different policies for different employees? How, how do you attack that? Yeah, we, we have guidance at, at ge- geographic and business unit levels, right? And, and as you know, there are certain roles that require you to be in an office and there are certain roles that don't, right? I mean, if you're in engineering in the lab, you probably need to be physically on site um, for both the equipment and the collaboration with your peers. If you're in sales, I probably don't want you in the office, right? I want you out uh, in the field with your customers. So I think you you have to have the flexibility with your leaders. Um, you have to treat your employees as the adults that they are uh, and have open conversations and dialogue about what makes most sense for your organization. And, and how much of that is incumbent on training people managers to be able to work with employees who are facing these kinds of challenges? Oh, tremendous, tremendous. You know, I think we ask a, an incredible amount out of our leaders, right? The, the days of a leader or manager simply managing people are over. They're doers as well as managers or leaders. And so uh, I think uh, enabling and, and empowering people to have the right conversations is, is incredibly important. Yeah. You know, a real trend we saw in 2023 and now in 2024 is generative AI really starting to get used in the workplace, especially by HR. So can you talk a little bit about how AI is being incorporated into what you guys are doing on the HR side? Yeah, I'm happy to. Funny enough, this is a very uh, timely uh, question. I had a, a roundtable with a number of new employees that I had I have not had the opportunity to meet with in the last year. And so one of the generalists was having a, um, I won't call it a complaint, but some frustration around some of the job posts that they've seen that have been very, very open-ended. I'm not really sure what you're trying to go, you know, look for in terms of a candidate. And one of our more uh, seasoned talent acquisition professionals said that he uses AI to do that. So you get the manager on the phone and you obviously vet the 
the opening to make sure it's real first and foremost. And then, you know, all of the questions we ask around salary and ban and level and things like that. And then you get into the job description. And he said, just from a few key words, you can put that into an AI application and it'll spit out a very nice job description as well written grammar, uh, punctuation, spelling, you know, something that would have taken him an hour to do with a manager one on one is probably now a 10 minute activity. So I think that's an area where you'll see a, an increase in productivity. And from there, I mean, are there more opportunities to integrate AI into the HR function? Oh, absolutely. I think everything from our hiring processes to predictive analytics around attrition. Um, we had a HRAS um, leader that, that went on to a different company uh, a few years ago, but he had done something years ago where he did some predictive analytics beyond compensation. Why do people leave? Uh, and it's funny, as we've moved forward a couple of years here, uh, a lot of the um, indicators uh, have come true uh, that people, why people leave, and it's not always compensation. So I think certainly on the three you know, major levers that we have are hiring, right, retention, and then development and promotion. And I think having predictive analytics around those things uh, can definitely help uh, the HR community. Yeah, no, it makes sense. So you're in a unique situation. I mean, you, you've got many years of experience, but really at two organizations, Lenovo and IBM, which are separate companies, but closely related. So would you advise other HR professionals who are looking for a C-suite position to climb the ladder at their current company rather than jumping ship to advance their careers? Again, probably a controversial answer, but <laughs> I would say do as I say, not as I do. I have been uh, in, incredibly uh, fortunate to work for the two companies I have worked for that it really invest in you as a professional, right? And I've been very, very fortunate to be surrounded with people over my career, back to the topic of mentorship and sponsorship, who've seen more in me than perhaps I've seen in myself and helped me uh, make my way both laterally and hierarchically to build T-shaped skills and build a depth and breadth of skills as well. And so I've been very fortunate, but I honestly, I would say if I were doing this over again, I would probably not just jump companies, but I would jump industries because I think you just, it's such a rich experience when you know, you know, if you're in healthcare uh, at one point, if you're in IT, if you're in the financial sector. So I, I am a fan of, of, of people taking opportunity and stretch assignments. And sometimes that means moving around company and it means moving around industry. Yeah. You know, and there are some very senior level HR people who will say, take a few years, get a few years of experience outside of HR. What's your thought there? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And particularly if that's a background you have, I'm, I'm a marketing major, right? And so, you know, there's been times that I've had roles that lent, lended themselves to that marketing background. They were less about HR and more about branding and more about, well, frankly, actually some part of the, the chief diversity officer role I'm in today and certainly the foundation role I'm in, um, branding is a big piece of that, right? And so- mm -hmm. I absolutely am a fan of going outside of HR and and getting the real experience in in a, in a line or you know other other corporate function. That's yeah, makes sense. And if you were advising someone who's a fairly new grad who's getting started, would you say HR generalist the route that you take is is the way to go, or is it better to get some specialties, work in comp, work in uh, training, you know, whatever it might be, as opposed to being a generalist? I think it's both. And I think you have to start with the end in mind. So if you want to be a CHRO, you know, you're going to have to rotate through a number of the centers of excellence of compensation and benefits and things of that nature. 
If you're just, you know, want to be support a senior uh, leader in a business unit, perhaps, then you could be an HR generalist or partner for most of your career. So I think you have to start with the end in mind. And, and, and I thought I would some fun point want to be a CHRO. And one of the things I probably would have done differently is I started debating on whether or not I take those things that I wasn't necessarily going to be good at and would struggle perhaps more than others. So example, I probably should have done compensation much earlier in my career. I decided to go do something fun, which was talent acquisition. And I never did make it through that compensation rotation. Now, obviously being a journalist for as long as I have, I've touched enough comp and executive comp to be dangerous. But if I had it all over to do again, I would have probably rotated through compensation first and then started rotating through those other areas like leadership development and OD that I found in me more, more fun, but probably lended themselves to my talents to be easier for me. But I definitely think that moving through you know, specialty areas um, and you certainly have to, I think, have to have a, a role as a as a as a journalist or partner because you have to have that client experience, the client insight really understand what the business is trying to accomplish and how does HR pay a, play a role in that? You know, I got to say, I love that you, uh, you consider talent acquisition to be fun. <laughs> that's, that's, my, our TA leader will tell you uh, I dabble enough to be dangerous and probably make her life miserable with my, with my brilliant ideas that she's probably already executing. <laughs> on. That's great. Well, we're almost out of time, but I've got to ask you to pull out your crystal ball. And, and look ahead over the next 12, 24 months, what are the issues that HR at the senior level needs to be aware of, needs to be concerned about, you know, maybe keeping you up at night, but maybe not. Maybe they're just things that you know are important you got to be thinking about. Human capital management, I think the same thing, and maybe this lends itself more to the IT industry than some others. You know, as we just talked about my career, that's where I've been. The, rate, the rapid change and pace of the industry, of technology, how do you keep the best skilled individuals on your team? How, with all of the workload, do you continue to upskill people so that they are able to work on the latest, greatest technology? So I think it's changed. That's one of the number one things we've had to navigate in the IT industry for a long time. Yeah, well, that's that's great. Well, Cal, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. We really appreciate it. And to all the listeners, you can follow the People and Strategy podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can learn more about the Sherm Executive Network at sherm.org slash executive. Also, listener reviews have a real impact on a podcast visibility. So if you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a review and help others find the show. Finally, you can find all of our episodes on our website at sherm.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and have a great day.